It's great to have you with us today as we continue in our series on faith in a time of crisis. You know, during this time when, because of the coronavirus, many of us are still spending a lot of time at home, maybe working from home and so on. Um, during this time of ISO life, as it's been termed, uh, a lot of people are talking about how it's given them time to think about God and the meaning of life and questions of faith. And so it's a great thing to be engaging in a series on faith in a time of crisis and re-examining our faith. And today we want to examine the topic of faith alone. What are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? Um, have we made the right choice about what we're trusting in or are we still trusting in other things? That's going to sound all very cryptic. Um, and even more cryptically, I want to actually begin with a little thought experiment. Now, you may be watching this from a chair, um, or if you're not sitting in a chair, you can certainly imagine what it's like because we spend a lot of our time sitting in chairs. But here I am, I'm standing, and I want you to imagine, here's the thought experiment, that I want to go about choosing a chair to sit in. Maybe my back's sore, I'm tired. And I, I want this chair to be a chair that is going to last a lifetime, a chair that is good and sturdy and strong. Uh, that feels great to sit in and um, is going to basically carry me through life. I want, I just, I want a great chair companion through life. So it'll be important which chair I choose, won't it? And there are a few different kinds of chairs I could choose. Now, once I choose the chair, whether I approach, when I go to sit in the chair, whether I approach it from the left or the right, that's not important, is it? Um, or whether I tuck my feet daintily under the chair, princess-like, or whether I sit there with my legs crossed, neither of those things is going to really affect whether the chair is fit for its purpose. The most important thing is that I choose the right chair, that I put my trust for my, of my body into the right support um, so you may be already guessing where this thought experiment is going. What if the key to a good and beautiful life is not so much about what I do, coming from the left or the right, doing what I do, um, buying what I buy, uh, trying what I try. Maybe what if the key to a good and beautiful life was more about um, what foundation I was trusting in, what, what um, metaphysical, existential chair, if you like, that, um, that I'm trying to get carried through life and into eternity with. What if the choice of the chair was the most important thing? Well, just hold that thought in your mind as we jump into Romans, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, and we're looking at the end of chapter 7 and even the start of chapter 8. Um, trusting in the right thing seems to be the message that the Apostle Paul wants us to hear when he says, he talks in verse 24, he says, Who is going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul has put his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. And he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free 
from the law of sin and death. We need to talk about whatever this law of sin and death is that supposedly Jesus Christ can release us from. Paul describes himself as set free. Um, and I want to examine what Paul thinks we need to be set free from um, and why choosing to trust in Jesus is the key to that freedom, to being set free, to being rescued. In the first part of um, Romans chapter 7, Paul describes a frustrating and unwinnable battle, even a war. He uses war language that he's in. And the battle is this, that he wants to live a good and beautiful life. He, he wants to be good. And for him, goodness um, consists in the law that God gave to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. But the Ten Commandments, um, honour your parents. Uh, do not uh, honour... Honor Honour those in authority over you and do not covet is actually the example that he gives, the commandment about do not covet or do not envy. And what he describes is the frustration of trying so hard to be a good person. And he, he, what he says is that um, he says those laws are good, those covenant laws that he's trying to live up to, they're all really good. And indeed, Laws generally are good. Um, the laws of our Western civilization are built on the Judeo-Christian commandments of, you know, respect and tolerance and, and treating others as you would have yourself be treated. I mean, just think, for example, of the, the law of speed limits. Um, as we drive through a suburb, generally the speed limit is about 60 k's. Sometimes it's 50, sometimes even 40. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I think most of us would say, that's a really good law because those speeds are set um, at such a level that if you're driving at those speeds, you can hopefully avoid an accident. Um, or if you hit the brakes at those speeds, you'll be able to come to a stop before hitting a pedestrian that might have run out unexpectedly or, or a car that's come at you unexpectedly. It's a safe speed. So it's a really good, they're good laws. But I wonder if anyone else Maybe it's just me, but I wonder if anyone else sees a sign like 60 or 50 or 40 and would it freely acknowledge that it's a great law, but actually feels incredibly tempted to go just a little bit faster. In fact, does go a tiny bit faster. So 60 means 62 um, or 50 means 54 or 40 just means, well, 40, uh, 42. I'm just thinking like, why is it that we're temp we're always tempted, even though it's a great thing, we're tempted to just um, flout that law just a little bit. Why is that so? Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many good laws. Um, for example, the laws about businesses not being able to spend the superannuation funds that they've put aside for their employees. Yeah, it's a really good law. So many good laws in our society. And Paul describes the law as good and actually he describes the law as spiritual. But he says there's kind of like a second law. He uses the word in a different way. It's like a principle. He says later in the chapter, so I find this law at work, and he's talking about, he's using the phrase as a principle. I find this principle at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 
In fact, um, almost poetically, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, uh, as it is, he says, it's no longer I myself who do it, it's sin living in me. That's who Paul blames uh, for why he doesn't do the good or even does the evil that he doesn't want to do. He says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And he blames the principle. He basically says that um, in verse 8, he says, sin, now he's describing sin as an independent outside character, sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment, do not covet, do not envy, and produces in him every kind of envying. Um, he even blames the law a bit. Apart from the law, um, he said he wouldn't have even known what coveting was if the law hadn't said you shall not covet. Uh, so he's really describing the frustration of trying to live up to good standards, which he freely acknowledges are good, but he just can't live up to them. He just can't live up to them. Um, I've been listening to a bit of music lately, as many of us have in ISO life, um, or it's nice now to be in our cars a bit more now and um, able to listen to great music. So I've been listening to this song this week by Bruce Springsteen. It's called One Step Up, so let me read the lyrics. Woke up this morning and my house was cold. Checked out the furnace, she wasn't burning. Went out and hopped in my old Ford. Hit the engine, but she ain't turning. We've given each other some hard lessons lately, but we ain't learning. We're the same sad story, that's a fact. One step up and two steps back. One step up and two steps back. And he's describing his relationship with his partner and saying the church bells they aren't ringing. I'm sitting here in this bar tonight. All I'm thinking is I'm the same old story, same old act. One step up and two steps back. That frustration of wanting to do good and yet finding frustratingly that um, it feels like as soon as you're motivated to do something great, that in fact it's like one step forward and two steps back. Um, how is it that a person who is motivated to do good actually ends up doing wrong, doing evil? Paul says in verse 11 that sin seizes an opportunity afforded by the law and actually makes us desire bad things. Um, and then as a result of that, we're condemned by those good laws. You might find that in your own life. A funny example would be uh, the, in the coronavirus advice about how to you know, not spread the virus. We're told that we shouldn't touch our faces. But what do we feel like doing as soon as we hear, don't touch your face? Oh my, oh my goodness, I've got to keep my hands away from my face. It's hard work. Uh, it's almost as if, you know, trying, just aiming at that good thing actually arouses in us a desire to do the exact opposite. Or as Helen mentioned earlier in the service, to-do lists. What a great and wonderful ambition it is to, to make a to-do list in order to get through and be really productive. But how many of us have so many to-do lists that we didn't accomplish? It almost feels like the making of them um, is our undoing. 
Or here's another example. You decide that you want to lose a bit of weight. A lot of us have been putting on a bit of weight in um, because we've been home all the time and not perhaps not exercising as much um, as our government recommends that we do. So I don't know if you've found it, but as soon as you decide that you want to eat fewer calories, suddenly your greatest desire is for a carbohydrate heavy piece of wonderful sourdough laden with thick butter and honey. Maybe it's just me, but you know, as soon as, soon as you have this ambition to lose weight, you suddenly start to want that or chocolate or whatever it is, whatever your weakness is. Or more seriously, let's say you really desire to be kind and patient with your children. Do you ever find that no sooner do you think that than they do something which is just incredibly irritating and just tries your patience completely? Or you decide that you're going to be more forgiving to your partner. No sooner do you make that decision than they do something which you think is, you know, unforgivable. Or you decide that you're going to be more generous at work. And it just feels like the very next day your supervisor asks you to do something wholly unreasonable. Uh, of course, it's not those other things. It's what's going on inside of us when we have that ambition to be good. It's like our sinful selves, our flesh, um, all that is corrupt within us kind of like bubbles to the surface and seems to make that very good ambition even more difficult. And Paul describes this as an unwinnable battle. It's like he's saying, morally, this is like your Vietnam, this is your Afghanistan war, you are not going to win this war. You are never, if you're trusting, if the chair that you're sitting in is good works, I'm going to be a good person, whatever your code is, uh, he's saying, you're not going to win. Uh, you're going to end up feeling a wretched failure. And we, we joke about it, we talk about, oh, well, you know, to err is human. We define humanity by the fact that we err. Or one thinks of Shakespeare and Macbeth. Um, Macbeth who, you know, after murder uh, exclaims, out, out, damn spot, and washes their hands again and again and again to try and remove their guilt. Um, and of course, there's no blood on their hands anymore, but they cannot remove it. Uh, it's, it's like, it's to err is human. Um, we all muck things up and and Paul says that our foiled attempts at goodness aren't just funny but they are tragic he describes himself as a wretched man and he says that this battle has its roots in a spiritual battle between good and evil and he says that it's not about trying harder we've actually got to be released from the law of the good law that condemns us. And he uses the illustration at the start of chapter 7, it's like I'm working backwards, uh, he uses the illustration of a married couple who make lifelong commitments to one another. And he says, but when one partner dies, the surviving partner is no longer bound by those commitments. And he says, likewise, we need to be liberated um, liberated from the law because in the very trying of to live up to the law uh, it condemns us because sin uses every opportunity it can 
um, to rise up in us and to stop us from doing the very good things that we desire to do. Um, and maybe you, maybe you wouldn't say that you um, are trying to follow the Ten Commandments. Maybe your desire to live a good and beautiful life, you might describe it in a more modern way. You might say, I just want to be kind. Um, or I just, we, we've got to be more tolerant. Or you might value empowering others. And I think we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of weeks with the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, which are about all of us, you know, saying every life matters and Black Lives Matter. Um, we want to empower the lives of everyone. Whatever code you're living by, Paul would be saying the same thing. The chair of trying your hardest to be good, however you define your good, will not support you, it will imprison you. Um, at, at your best you're going to be saying, well, to err is human, I tried. The important thing is just the journey, you know, all these statements that we have. Um, he says, no, it's, it's unwinnable. And he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, now freed from the condemnation of the law, there is no condemnation. If you are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus and his substitutionary death on our behalf, we've been set free. Christ, of course, was perfect, the perfect man, the only one to have ever, you know, walked in the flesh and not committed sin. Um, and his death was not justice. Uh, he was a righteous man. And be but because he was righteous... He was able to die a death to sin on our behalf, the righteous for unrighteous you and me, in order to set us free from sin and death. We're no longer bound by that. Instead, he says in chapter 8, through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what Paul has put his faith in, and his faith is in that alone. It is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that's his chair. That's what he's trusting in. That is alone what is going to carry him through this life and not lead him to despair over and over again, um, and what is going to carry him through to eternity. A new law, a new principle, a new spirit. We've been given a new heart through putting our faith in Jesus Christ and being indwelt by God's Spirit, being given a new spirit. There's still a tension until Jesus returns. And Paul acknowledges that, you know, he says, thanks be to God, and then immediately after he says, so in my mind I am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. He still lives that tension, as do we all. But he thanks God and overrulingly, um, his faith is in what Jesus has done for him. So if the chair is a metaphor, uh, thank you for um, thank you for struggling through that metaphor. It's hard to find a perfect metaphor uh, for faith, but if if faith were a chair, what we're trusting in, my question to you is, what 
chair are you trusting in to carry you through life? Make sure it's not a broken chair. Make sure it's not a chair which is not going to support you. Um, and it is all about the chair. It's not about trying harder and harder. Um, uh, he says it's not the chair of I'm trying to live my best life. I'm trying to be the best me. Um, that chair will eventually lead us to self-loathing and frustration. An unwinnable war, as Paul says. One step forward and two steps back, as uh, Bruce Springsteen sings. And yet the chair of Jesus has rescued me is the chair that sets me free to live a new life in his spirit. Not to live in any way I choose because I'm no longer bound by the law. No, the person who isn't still trying to, 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 to do the wonderful things of, the, of God's good laws, who, the person who isn't trying to be kind and patient and respectful and to love God with their whole heart and mind, that person is not possessed by the, by the spirit of God. Uh, we, 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 you know, we, we still continue a passionate struggle, but we are trusting that uh, we're trusting that no matter what we do and whether we muck up or not, we're trusting that we are saved anyway because of what Jesus has done. And we're trusting in the empowerment of his spirit um, to give us a new spirit, a new way, a new way where we're not trying to tick boxes, but we're living a new life in God's spirit. Um, we sing about this when we sang earlier in the service the song In Christ Alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, um, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand or sit. Uh, following the metaphor. And let me close with some wonderful words from uh, another song written by Rob Smith, a Sydney musician, and he writes this, Put a new song in my heart. Let me hear the praises start. Dispel the night and give me light again. Put a new thought in my mind. Help me leave the past behind and break these chains that I might live again. May the chains of trusting in your own goodness, um, may those chains be broken by the liberating trust in what Christ has done for us alone. Um, may you live again. Lift my fallen face and help me to stand. Flood me with the grace that comes from your hand. Cleanse me from my sin. Lord, forgive me again that I might be yours alone. Well, if those words describe the song of your heart, um, if you indeed want to uh, trust in Jesus Christ, that you want to have your faith alone in Christ, not in good things you might do, not in ticking boxes, not in trying harder, but instead living the new life in his spirit, led by his spirit, that Romans 8 magnificently speaks of. Please grab a Bible and read Romans 8. It's, it's a pinnacle um, in scripture about life, new life in the spirit. Um, and if you want that new life, then simply say amen to those words. Lift my fallen face, help me to stand, flood me with the grace that comes from your hand. Cleanse me from my sin. 
Lord, forgive me again in Christ that I might be yours alone, that I might be free again, for I have been forgiven, for I am yours alone. Amen.